So it's Palm Sunday and we're talking about Jesus going to the cross on His way there at least. And our, our Scripture this morning that John read, you could think of it when he sends, the, he sends His disciples to go get the donkey. And you could think of it in, like I used to imagine it as here come the disciples, they go to somebody's house, they start untying his, his donkey, and he's like, what are you doing? And they're saying, well, the Lord needs it. And then I was wondering, well, what if that was my donkey, I would say, I don't know who you're talking about. Get away from my donkey. But he just let it go. And so it makes me wonder if it's not more like there was something set up ahead of time. Like there's some sort of resistance movement within the, the culture here. Like there's a, there's a code, there's a spy movie sort of thing going on. Like this is a prearranged thing and this, this owner of this donkey knows something's going to happen and he's waiting for the right... You've all probably seen like World War II movies with the French resistance and they've, you know, you go, or, you're, or a spy movie where they have a, a code word where you go up and you say a certain phrase and the person says the right phrase backwards and then you know you've met the person you're looking for, right? Like spy talk. And that's kind of what I picture here that Jesus sends, you go, you go into the village and maybe they don't even know what they're being sent to do, but but Jesus gives them the right line. They don't know who they're supposed to meet, but they're looking for this, this, this donkey, and he knows where it is, and he's sending them off. And so they go in, and he says, you're going to find a colt tied there, and untie it, bring it here. If somebody asks you, because they're going to ask, because they know what the, the procedure, why are you untying it? Just say the Lord needs it, and he'll know what you're talking about. And so they do that. They go, and they find the colt, and they untie it. And he says, why are you untying that colt? And they say, the Lord needs it. And he says, I got gotcha. you. You go ahead. I, I knew it was coming. And so I've got this different picture in my mind now than I, than I used to when I was younger. But he rides this donkey and into, into town and the crowd gathers around and like Sharon said, they're waving palm branches and taking off their, their cloaks and waving them around and they're excited and it turned into this impromptu celebration. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And of course the... I think some of the Pharisees recognize that this is, this is what the prophecy is talking about. Like, they shouldn't be saying this about, because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the kind of thing you talk about the Christ, the Messiah, when he comes. These are the kinds of things you say. Don't talk about this Jesus that way. Tell, your, tell these people to be quiet. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, the very stones will cry out. Because this is what's happening. This is what the prophets foretold. And it's happening today. And it's meant to happen today. And you can't stop. Nothing can stop it. If these people weren't shouting, the earth itself would be crying, blessed is the King. And we've talked before when we went back through our study of Daniel that uh, this was all timed out. Like it was not just foretold. It was foretold like down to the day when it was going to happen. In Daniel 9.25 it says, so no one understand from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now remember, this Babylon has come. They've destroyed Jerusalem. So it's, it's gone. The city is gone. It's been reduced down to just rubble. And so they're waiting for someday when it's going to be rebuilt. And it says, from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince arrives, an anointed Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. And both of those words mean anointed one. So, in Jerusalem, until an anointed one, a prince arrives, there will be a period of seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will again be built with plaza and moat, but in distressful times. So we're told, and the sevens are years, 
and we, and we're given some math. So you gotta that your teachers told you you need to know math. Well, there's a good reason here. They'll be told there'll be 69 sevens because that's seven sevens, and 62 is 69 until the Messiah comes, the Anointed One, and the Jewish and the Babylonian calendar actually because that's when Daniel was alive. Both of them were based on a year of 360 days. So ours is 365, but those ancient calendars were 360 days long. And so 69 times 7, 69 sevens, times, if you multiply by those years, 360 days each, adds up to 173,880 days. And the start date of the prophecy that Daniel's given here is the he says there's a the, you'll know when it's going to start when these when when you start counting these sixty nine sevens and you start when the command is given to rebuild the the wall of Jerusalem to start rebuilding the city so when you hear that command you know that's the start date of this prophecy and Nehemiah tells us the date the prophet Nehemiah and in chapter two verse one of Nehemiah then in the month of Nisan in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes so if we and then he goes on to tell in that rest of that chapter that that you know he gets some information from his servant and he says okay you can you can go back and you can rebuild the wall uh, rebuild your uh, the Jerusalem start working on the city so that's the date in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes because in the bible they didn't have they didn't have like you know June 1st 1997 they didn't date things they dated things by the year of the reign of a certain king or what they were doing so in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes. And if we go by the historians, they, they put that date at, in 444 B.C. on the 1st of, of Nisan, which corresponds in our, our calendar, like the Julian calendar, of March 5th, 444 B.C. So on our calendar, from March 5th, 444 B.C., 173,880 days adds up to in our 365 day years, that's 476 years and 25 days. I know this is a lot of numbers, but we're getting there. So if you start on March 5th, 444, that would put the end date of Daniel's prophecy at March 30th in 33 AD. And the Passover that year was four days later on April 3rd. So if we've crunched all the numbers correctly, then Daniel predicted the triumphal entry of the Messiah right down to the day that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Like it's one thing to say that, you know, hundreds of years in the future the Messiah is going to come riding into a rebuilt Jerusalem on a donkey. It's another thing to say the day that it's going to happen some almost 500 years later. That's amazing to me. And and the prophet Zechariah foretold how the Messiah would show up. So we've got Daniel and uh, Nehemiah, and now Zechariah is involved. And he says this is how the, the Messiah is going to show up. And surprise, the, everybody was thinking the Messiah is going to be this military commander. He's going to put Jerusalem back on the world. So they're thinking, you know, he's going to come with power, like military might, political power, riding, you know, on a golden chariot with war horses, that kind of thing. But he doesn't. He surprises everybody. And Zechariah 9 9 says what they should have expected Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So a young little donkey, never been ridden before, 
and the, the, the Messiah comes in riding on this little... Th- like, if you've ever seen a donkey, they're not big. And a young donkey that's probably the first time it's ever been written, like, like Jesus is probably even... It's barely holding him up. So he's riding on this little tiny donkey. Like the Messiah, this great coming you know, the man who's going to change the whole world is riding on this animal barely big enough to carry him. And it's to point out, he's co- I'm coming in humility. I'm coming to, to shake things up in a way that you do not expect. Even though I told you hundreds of years ago what to expect, you've missed it. And unfortunately, things kind of went downhill after that. He comes in in this, this amazing celebration and people are shouting and cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're praising the Lord. And <clears throat> once he got into town... He caused quite a stir because he goes to the temple and he starts tipping over tables and driving out the, the money changers and the animal sellers. And it's, I mean, it's, he has good reason too because the way the temple was set up, they figured there's going to be people coming from, I mean, it's the Passover season, right? So there's going to be people coming from all over the world, coming back for Passover to celebrate with us. And not all of them are going to be shepherds who have sheep or whatever that they can bring sacrifice. And even the ones that do are not going to want to travel hundreds of miles with a, with a sheep if they can help it. So we'll, when they come here, we'll have animals available for sale. So they can come here and they can buy a, a pure animal that's clean and they can use that for sacrifice, which is a good idea. The problem is, they said, you can only use temple money. So you bring your currency from you know, Roman currency or whatever currency you're bringing, you have to now exchange your currency for temple currency because you can't buy our animals with you know, this unwashed Gentile currency. You've got to use temple money. Which is, again, that's okay. But the problem was they had this horrible exchange rate. So they would gouge the customers. They would say, we'll give you temple money, but we're going to charge you quite a markup for it. So they would give them this unfair exchange rate for their money and then they would say, now that you're stuck here and you've got to buy a, a clean animal, we're going to also mark up the price of the animals. So they're, they're really gouging these people. They're taking their money. You know, they they want to just come and, and offer the sacrifice to the Lord and celebrate the Passover. And here the temple is just charging them this exorbitant fees to exchange their money and buy an animal, which is horrible. They're, they're taking advantage of these poor people. And Jesus says, you're turning what's supposed to be a house of prayer into a marketplace. In Luke 19.45, it says, Then Jesus entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were selling things there and saying to them, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. Because that's what they were doing. And, and what could the people do? And it says, Jesus was there teaching daily in the temple courts. The chief priests and the experts in the law and the prominent leaders among the people were seeking to assassinate him. But they could not find a way to do it, for all the people hung on to his words. So Jesus, before this happened, Jesus was already a threat to the Jewish leadership, we talked about, because crowds of people were following him, and they were excited to hear him. They were amazed by, by the miracles that he was doing, and the authority of his teaching, and, and the, just the, the power that he was demonstrating. And the, he was doing things that only God has the authority to do. And so the religious leaders were jealous. They were angry. that Who is this guy coming in and, t- and taking all our people, leading them astray? And now he's tipping over tables, the money tables, where we're, we're getting our exchange rate and we're selling our animals. And he's, so he's, now he's a threat to their money. 
and he's a threat to their power. Before he was just a threat to their popularity. Now he's a threat to their income. You know, they're this, they're getting rich off of this, and they use and and they're that's their political base. Like they're using some of that money to then pay to Rome so that the Romans will allow them to continue to have their religious authority. So, Because Rome came in and said, we're taking over. And they said, listen, if we pay you off, will you allow us to continue to kind of be in charge of this religious system and kind of still live our, our religious life? And so they said, okay. And so they were taking the money and giving it to Rome. And so now Jesus is, is threatening that. He's threatening their, their income, which you know, lets them be wealthy, and their political power, which lets them run the, the, the show. And because of that, they're willing to have Jesus assassinated. They're willing to kill this guy who's threatening their money and their power. And I just think, like, imagine yourself. I mean, none of us are in a, the position of you know, a, a ruler, like the religious authorities, and none of us are, are rich and powerful. So I, what would happen, in, what would have to happen in your life to be willing to assassinate somebody? Like to think this guy is threatening my livelihood and my status, I'm going to kill him. What would have to happen in your life to be willing to do that? Like you've got to get either really twisted or just be so attached to money and power. And that's, you know, we often think of our politicians like that. Like what are they willing to do to get their jobs? And, you know, and especially somebody who you know is innocent who you know is this miracle worker who's doing these amazing teachers because they've, they've heard about Jesus. They've watched him teach in the temple. And they know he's a good guy. And yet they're willing to have him killed because he's a threat to them. And like I think of, we always you know, used Mother Teresa as an example of a good person. And, and she did a lot to give help to the you know, very poor people and sick people and she wasn't perfect by any means, but she did a lot of good for the, for the world. And she became extremely well-known because of her work. She was never rich. She was never had political power. But because of her works, she became very well-known. And can you imagine a government wanting to have Mother Teresa killed because of her, what she was doing, because she was making an impact in the world? That, you know, somebody in power saying, this woman is a threat to me because of what she's doing. Let's have her killed. And that's what they're doing to Jesus. Jesus, he's not, he doesn't have power, he doesn't have money. He's just this influential guy who's making an impact in the world. And now the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. And so that's what he's up against. And they know he's innocent. And, they're, and because of that, he's in the temple. You know, if they really wanted to get him, they could have got him any day. He's there teaching. But they're afraid to just grab him while he's there teaching and the, because the crowds love him. The crowds surround him and they know if we grab him in the middle of the daytime, there's going to be an uproar. So instead of that, they in secret kind of go behind closed doors and they put a price on his head. And as we all know, Judas accepts that price. He takes the money and he leads the temple guard to Jesus in the middle of the night while he's praying in the, in the, you know, in the garden where he would go to pray because Judas, know where, as one of the disciples, he knew where they would go to pray in private. And so the, the Jewish council now has him. He's arrested in the middle of the night and they would love to just stone him to death. You know, they put him through this mock trial and they'd like to just kill him if they could. But they're also under Roman occupation, which means they're not allowed to dole out capital punishment. They have some authority, but they don't have that kind of authority. 
So they have to go and get permission from, from the Roman authorities, which is why they drag Jesus before Pilate to convince Pilate to kill Jesus for them. Even though he's never broken any laws. And everybody knows that. The, Jew, the Jewish leadership knows it. Pilate knows it. He's not a bad guy. He's never done anything illegal. Especially nothing worth killing him over. So, in Matthew 27, at verse 11, it says, Then Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Which is a really interesting question. Because that's basically what they're, you know, they, they're, they're blaming him for, that he's claiming to be this, this um, insurrectionist leading a revolt against Rome. That's why the Jews are trying to say to get Jesus killed. And Jesus says, you say so. And like, you said it. And, but when it says when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not respond. And Pilate said to him, don't you hear how many charges they're bringing against you? But he did not answer even one accusation. So the governor was quite amazed. He knew, he knew Jesus was innocent. He says, you hear these shouts against you. They're calling you this, this insurrectionist that you're putting yourself on a, on a pedestal. Aren't you going to answer the charges? And then verse 15 says, during the feast, the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner to the crowd. So every Passover time, he'd let somebody go. Probably somebody you know, who wasn't a very bad criminal. They could pardon him, sort of be a, you know, let the Jews celebrate their, their time. And... It's at whomever they wanted. So they'd kind of let the Jews pick. So verse 17, So after they had assembled, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called Christ? Now they both happen to have the, the same name. I think in the, in the King James it doesn't say, it doesn't have Jesus Barabbas. But then like in the NASB, they have older source documents that they have. So that has Jesus next to Jesus. So Jesus Barabbas and Jesus who's called Messiah, both have the same first name, which is interesting. For he knew, Pilate knew, that they had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate knows he's not breaking the law, he's not done anything wrong, but they're jealous of him because he's got a lot of popularity, and they want to kill him for it. And Pilate knows it. And as he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man. I have suffered greatly as a result of a dream about him today. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. And the governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he asked, why? What wrong has he done? But they shouted all the more insistently, crucify him. So everybody knows Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows it. The Jewish leadership knows it. I think even the crowd knows it, but they've got them all stirred up to just shout for Barabbas, who is an insurrectionist, who has been doing what they blame Jesus for, but they want to release him. And it's a so everybody knows he's innocent, but everybody's moving towards the crucifixion. And it's it's this horrible travesty of justice i mean it's it's absolutely wrong what they're doing and there's and it says so after they assembled Pilate said to them whom do you want me to release for you jesus barabbas or jesus who is called the christ 
And the, the word Jesus, which they would have pronounced it more like Yeshua, is, comes from the name Joshua in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament Joshua is kind of the same as the modern Jesus. The, the, the name is the same. And Messiah, or Christ, which is what Pilate is saying, means anointed one. So when he says Jesus who is called Christ, Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. So Jesus who is called the Messiah is what he's saying. Jesus who is called the Christ in Greek. And an interesting thing about Barabbas, Jesus and Barabbas, they both have the same name. The, the name Barabbas means son of the father. Bar, if you ever heard Bar in any Jewish name, that means son of. So Bar, somebody, Judah, Bar, Joseph, means son of Joseph. You know, so Bar... Abbas. Abbas comes from the word Abba, which means father. So the Jesus Barabbas name is Jesus, son of the father. Isn't that interesting? Like, how you couldn't, like, that has to be more than a coincidence that this is set up, that God is doing something kind of cool with the names here. That he's saying, Do you want Jesus who's called Christ or Jesus, son of the father? And I don't know. I don't know if there's any theological significance to the fact that he has this really interesting name, but, but it just it's interesting that they've got these two Jesuses. And the crowd is and they they're both blamed for the same thing. They're both, you know, charged with insurrection and leading, you know, the leading Jewish insurrectionists kind of against the government sort of thing. And they both have the name Jesus, and the people choose the Jesus that makes them more comfortable. Which is a problem that a lot of people have today. That they make up a Jesus in their own head and they talk about, you know, well, Jesus loves everybody and he doesn't really care about my sin and sure, I've done wrong, but, you know, I'm not as bad as Hitler and when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, well, you weren't that bad, come on in, sort of thing. Like people make up a Jesus that goes along with whatever they want to do, however they want to live their life and they just, instead of going through the Bible, and saying, well, Jesus says that I, sh- I, I got to live my life a certain way, that I should walk away from my sin and follow Him and live the life that He's called me to live and be, be a holy person, be a righteous person, and to humble myself. And people say, I don't want to live that way. I don't like that kind of life that He's calling me to. So instead, then, instead of doing what, what the biblical Jesus says, they make up a Jesus in their own head. They make up their own God that fits their likes. So they can live their life however they want and say, well, God still loves me and God loves everybody and He doesn't really care. And that's what people do. They pick the Jesus that makes them comfy, that they can get along with and not feel like they have to change anything. And that's kind of what's going on here. You've got these two Jesuses and the crowd says, get rid of the one that makes us uncomfortable, or that's what the Jewish leadership is saying, and let go of the one who is an insurrectionist, but that isn't threatening to our power. So that's sad, right? I mean, we've got layers and layers of this prophetic prophecy going on. And everybody should have recognized it. I mean, everybody knew he was innocent, but all these religious leaders should have seen this is the guy that all this stuff is pointing to. But they're blind to it because they're too involved in making themselves rich and powerful, taking care of their worldly needs. So it's this horrible, tragic, sad story. And the disciples are shaken. And they're scared because Jesus gets arrested and they run off. They disappear. They flee. And, and they're, so they're scared. They're confused. They wonder what's going on. Like, 
you can, I can only imagine what's going on in their head. Were we wrong this whole time? Like, he did all those things that only God can do. He, he taught with such a, with authority and power. And how could we be wrong? How could we have gotten this wrong? Because why is Jesus dead right now? I mean, if he, if he is the Messiah, how can he be dead? I guess, you know, he did tell us he was going to die. He kept talking about this three days thing, but we thought that was a metaphor or something. Like, he wasn't really going to die because he's supposed to be the Messiah and come in power. And what are we supposed to do now? So they're scared, they're confused, they're, they're worried. Have you ever asked those kind of questions in your own life? I didn't expect this to happen. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm stressed out. Life is falling apart. And I don't know what to do. Where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? I don't understand. I mean, if you're really a loving God, why do you allow these terrible things to happen? And I've heard that question so much. Why did God let my spouse die? Or my child die? Or, or for this relationship to fall apart? Or for me to lose my job? Or my, my house? Or my money? Or whatever? And we can ask the same thing about Jesus. Why did God allow Jesus to be crucified? What a terrible, tragic, sad event. Why would Jesus allow Himself to go through such humiliation and torture when He could have called 10,000 angels? Why would He do that? Why would He allow such a bad, terrible, horrible thing to happen? But those questions are the way the world thinks. And when we ask them, we're thinking like the world. We think in terms of politics and power and, and what we want our life to turn out like. Health and wealth. That's what we think of. Happiness and money. We want our lives to be good, which is only natural. I mean, who wants to be uncomfortable when you can be comfortable? Who wants a snowstorm when you can have a nice spring day? Right? We want our lives to be nice. We want to have good food and, and comfy clothes and a nice house to live in and a nice car to drive and a, and a job that's secure and our family to be happy and healthy. I mean, those are all good things to want, not terrible. And when they fall apart, we think, why is this happening to me? Why, why does God let these terrible things happen in the world? But we're thinking in terms of, of, of the world. And that's not the way God thinks. When God looks at this stuff, there's, you know, we've got this surprise attack on the enemy. Everybody was expecting Jesus to come in power. The Messiah is supposed to come in power. And he sneaks through riding on a donkey. Unexpected by everybody. And I was thinking during this week, and this is just my own pondering, this is not some biblical doctrine or anything, but what if Satan and the rest of the enemy, the demons, you know, everybody's against God, were thinking the same thing all along the way? Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes, we know he's coming. He's going to come in power. Let's be ready. And so all the way since the time of the Tower of Babel, the enemy has been amassing political power and developing military might. And, and, the, and the Bible, you know, in Daniel, it talks about how there's this hierarchy of, of angelic beings and, and demonic beings. Like they actually rule sections of the world and, and are in charge of cities. So I imagine there's a hierarchy where Satan is the top and he's got generals and whatever. I mean, but what if all this time he's been building up since the time of, of Babylon? amassing this power and he's got demons in charge of places trying to get you know building empires and armies and when daniel talks about the empires he paints them in pictures of these horrendous beasts 
these nasty, twisted, you know, morphed animals. Uh, you know, and it's Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, and they're these vicious animals that are conquering larger and larger kingdoms as they go, taking over more and more of the world, amassing this power and might. And it's like the devil wants to prepare the best war machine that he can in order to be ready for when that Messiah comes in power, we're going to wipe him out. That's the way the world thinks. And I I'm, and I'm wonder, that might be the way the enemy was thinking too. So, when the Messiah comes, we can beat them into submission. We can beat God's people down into the dirt because we've got all this power. Why else would the Jewish people be targeted for... Forever, for all this history, for thousands of years, that the Jews have been hated by at least portions of the world. Right up until today, right? For throughout history. The best, that, you know, Israel has never been a world dominating power, ever. I mean, the, their kingdom was pretty strong when, when David and Solomon were in charge, but they were never like Persia or Greece or Egypt, even. They. they they were, they were never a world power, and yet they've been treated as if they are this massive threat that, you, that is going to take over somehow. And they've been treated that way by the pharaohs of Egypt, by, by Babylon, by Rome, by Nazi Germany, and today the Muslim Middle East wants to wipe Israel off the map. Why? And it seems like the enemy wants to wipe out God's people, and always has. To, to, to get them off the map because they're going to come in power. But Jesus didn't show up with an army. He didn't show up in a, in a chariot with war horses. He showed up riding on a little donkey. And he didn't come to conquer Rome. He let the Romans kill him. It's like he's got this backwards sneak attack and, and that was his plan all along. Not to beat the world into submission, but to submit himself the world he won his victory with humility and compassion and surprised everybody i was in this pumpkin carving contest when my grandma was still alive we went out to the sinisippi farm and they were you know trying to bamp everything up for the christmas trees that will be on sale soon and it was so it was during halloween time and they had a pumpkin carving contest and they said you know we got there and they said do you want to join the contest and i was like Okay, and they showed us we were late, so everybody else had already finished. And we went into this room, and they had them all on shelves. And they're just people spent hours on these things, and you know, big pumpkins with you know, ornate, scary faces. Like it, it was amazing the, the the time that people put in this. And I thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to even match any of these people. So I took, I went out to their patch and picked a little round pumpkin, and I tarred two little eyes and an upside down triangle for a nose and a round mouth with one tooth, and it kind of was looking up like it was scared, going. And I put it in between the two biggest, scariest pumpkins. And I won. And I, my, my, my prize was a live Christmas tree that I planted in my grandma's yard. It's, it's huge now. But I won with this little pumpkin. And I think that's kind of like what Jesus did. that He snuck in in a way nobody was expecting. And He won. He won by, by sacrificing Himself. He won by losing. And, and, and it worked. Since, since then... How many millions have turned their eyes upon Jesus and been transformed by that sacrificial love? How many have looked upon the cross and been changed because of His sacrifice? And the devil was thinking, we're getting Him, we're smashing Him, we're crushing Him. And He was winning the whole time. So God 
can he use tragedy to bring good? Obviously. He used the tragedy of the cross to bring about the best good that the world has ever seen. How many of you have suffered tragedy? Probably most, if not all of us, have, have lost a loved one, we've gone through a disease, we've had heartbreak, confusion, anger, resentment, and wondered, why is this happening to me? How am I going to get through this? Do you believe that God is wise and powerful enough to bring good out of your tragedy? You should. Will you trust him to do that? We live in a broken world. But it's because we're free. It's because God has given us the freedom to make our own decisions. You, you can, if you've ever been to an amusement park that have those cars that you can drive, but there's a track in between the wheels, so you can't leave the track. You can you know, make it go a little bit fast or slow, but you turn the wheel only so far before it hits the track and it gets you back on it. Or you can go out on the road and drive a real car. Which is true freedom? I mean, the track is fun for a little kid, but in the real car, you can, you can drive wherever you want, but also you can die. If you swerve too far, you can hit another car or run into a tree or something. So with the freedom is great, but you can, you know, you got to be careful because you can kill yourself and others. So God gives us freedom. And He gives us the freedom to choose to live our lives basically however we want to live them. But it also means He has to allow things to run their course. If people choose to do bad, evil things and He stops it, well, that's that track and it's not true freedom. So by giving us freedom, He allows us to wreck ourselves, basically. And so it's dangerous. The question is, when we see these wrecks happening because of the freedom He's given us, will we trust God through it? Or will we walk away when things are rough? The, Jesus trusted the Father. He prayed in the garden, God, I, I don't want to have to die. Because who would? I don't want to have to be whipped and beaten and, and humiliated and spit on. Nobody would want to do that. But I trust You, Father. And I will go through it. Because I know that's your will. Your will be done, not mine. And he was going to be tough. And he was going to drink that cup. And he never gave up. So the question to us is, will you hang on to? Will you trust the Father to lead you through whatever tragedies you may face? And keep, keep going on. He's been crucified and, and died on the cross. And I, I love the, the message that says it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. Easter is coming. Last week we talked about the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead. And did you notice Jesus never called her dead? How did he describe her? She's asleep. She's not dead. Well, of course, physically she was dead. Everybody knew it. But Jesus said, no, don't worry about it. And how does the Bible describe Christians? In the New Testament, when Christians die, does it say they're dead? No, it says they're asleep. The saints are asleep. And, and whatever makes up you, yeah, your body dies, but your, your soul, your spirit, the essence of who you are, nobody ever really dies. The, the, this, this physical form might quit, but who you are continues. We just change locations. So when we think about, you know, when people say, why did God allow people die, to die? Or why did He kill people? You know, like in the Old Testament, why did He let people go in and wipe out whole towns? Well, did they really die? Or did they just change locations? Right? So, when you think about your dead loved one that, that it broke your heart to lose, or about how your own body, 
at some point is going to wind up dead and in the grave. It's actually a little short-sighted to think of that as dead and gone. We're all going to go before the righteous judge someday. Before our Creator. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess and there's nobody going to be left behind. We're all going to say Jesus Christ is Lord and we're all going to know that His rule and His judgment is right. Whether we say right now we believe in Him or not. There's going to be a lot of people who say, I don't believe in Jesus right now, that are going to get on their knees and say, yes, He's Lord. And they're going to accept His judgment as righteous. Whatever that is, because He's a righteous judge. So for a believer, when we die, or when somebody we love dies, it's not goodbye, it's good night, Because they're asleep. If you trust Jesus, then just like He did for the, for the religious ruler's little girl, He'll tell you when it's time to get up. Time to get up. Just like he did the little girl. Little girl, time to get up. I've made a new heavens and I've made a new earth. Time to come and live in them. If you trust in Jesus, on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. But then he said something after that. Like it wasn't actually finished. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That doesn't sound like the end. That sounds like there's something more to come. Right? That's not goodbye. That's good night. See you in the morning. I'm trusting my, my soul to you, Father. That you're going to do the right thing. And we can claim the victory. And we can say, oh death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, uh, verse 54. Now when the perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your string? Your sting? Will you... Trust God in whatever happens in your life to cause all things to work together for those who love Him, for good, for the good of those who love Him. Believe in Him and He will never leave you and never forsake you. And it'll be, see you in the morning. And we don't have to, I mean, it's tough to lose a loved one. And I totally get that because I've lost loved ones in my life. It's tough to go through tragedy or to lose a job or to have financial trouble or to struggle and be stressed out and, and and confused and like the disciples wondering what is going on. But Sunday's coming. Trust in Jesus that there's going to be a good getting up morning that we all look forward to. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much. You are, you are amazing. And You had a victory that didn't look like victory at first, but it surprised everybody. And it has made the world such a better place and now millions of people have turned to you but we know that there's millions and millions more who need to turn to you so god i pray that you'd help us if there's anybody here who is not filled with that good news and that new life that you would help them to see that they can have it through you through your sacrifice for their sins and i pray that for everybody else who has already accepted that wonderful grace that you would help us to share it with the rest of the world who is in desperate need of your life-saving grace We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for giving yourself to save us. We thank you for going through with that difficult, horrendous, terrible task in order to save our lives and set us free. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.